Chief, do you think we'll be able to defeat these things? Well, we killed 19 of them today right in this area. Those last three we caught trying to claw their way into an abandoned shed. They must have thought somebody was in there. There wasn't, though. We heard them making all kind of noise. We came over and beat them off, blasted them down. Chief, as soon as you're finished, can I see you here? Yeah, okay. Chief, uh, if I were surrounded by six or eight of these things, would I stand a chance with them? Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot them in the head. That's a sure way to kill them. If you don't, get yourself a club or a torch. Beat them or burn them. They go up pretty easy. Well, Chief McClellan, how long do you think it will take you until you get the situation under control? Well, that's pretty hard to say. We don't know how many of them there are. We know when we find them, we can kill them. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. off to a good start for all of you. This is Mackenzie Lambert, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten and the unforgettable. As I said in my previous episode back in 2019, I would start the year off with the original Dead Trilogy from George A. Romero. We'll be taking a look at the trifecta of great horror films, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. Before we jump into the films, let's take a look at the man himself. George Andrew Romero was born on February 4, 1940, in the Bronx borough of New York City. He grew up on the Universal Monsters during their theatrical revival showings in the 1950s. He would also rent reels to watch at home. In 1960, he graduated from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He started his filmmaking career with commercials and short films. His big break came from filming the removal of Fred Rogers' tonsils for an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. In the late 1960s, Romero and others founded Image 10 Productions. It was shortly after the creation of this company that Romero and collaborator John Russo started pre-production on the film that would be Night of the Living Dead. siblings arrive at a cemetery to place a wreath on their father's grave at the behest of their mother. After Johnny teasing Barbara, they are attacked by a man aimlessly wandering through the cemetery. Johnny is knocked out, leaving Barbara to run away. The strange man gives chase. Barbara makes her way to a farmhouse. She meets up with Ben, a man who is trying to get a handle on the situation. Ben works on fortifying the house when he meets Harry Cooper and Tom. The duo and others were hiding in the basement. Almost immediately, Ben and Harry are at each other's throats. A power struggle begins as Ben wants to barricade themselves upstairs while there is still means of escape. 
Yet, Harry wants everyone in the cellar with only one door to protect. All the while, more and more strangers surround the house. I've been teasing this particular film for a long time now on Mac and the Movies. I mentioned the film briefly in episode 13 for the zombie innovators and game changers because this film gave us the modern zombie movie. There was also episode 16 for film adaptations of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, a novel that Romero admitted had a major influence on Night of the Living Dead. Well, here we are now, talking about one of the most important horror films, or films in general. The origins of this film are interesting. Originally, Romero and Russo were working on a film that was more of a comedy before realizing the film lacked a punch. In the late 1960s, TVs were filled with footage of civil rights activists being battered with fire hoses, batons, and dogs. Imagery referenced in the footage of patrols with attack dogs. The Vietnam War was on the minds of many as men were sent over into a foreign land and an omnipresent threat awaited them in the dense jungles. Romero felt society was coming to a breaking point, which was heavily implemented in the subtext of the film. Night of the Living Dead stands as a costly lesson in the importance of copyright, but also stands as an excellent argument for public domain. Originally, the film was titled Night of the Flesh Eaters. During the production, the title was changed to Night of the Living Dead. Unfortunately, the copyright was not updated for the new title, costing Romero and company millions, and by this point, possibly billions, in box office receipts, licensing fees, and royalties. Everyone and their mother and grandmother put out a copy of Night of the Living Dead. And it's because of that public domain status that the film has maintained a near-constant pop culture presence. There has to be hundreds of versions of the film available on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, etc. It's one of those films that dominates the TV listings around Halloween. Screening houses all over the world have the film in frequent rotation. Generation after generation of filmmakers, from Toby Hooper to Bob Clark to George Grau to Jean Rolin to John Carpenter to Sam Raimi to Edgar Wright, continue to cite Romero and Night of the Living Dead as a major influence. Romero and company made little money from the film, but in place of monetary gain, they received pop culture immortality. On the downside, many filmmakers have used the title Night of the Living Dead for their own films. I don't think I need to tell you that a lot of these films just absolutely suck. You better believe I'll have an episode dedicated to these sad sacks who show that lack of originality is a problem in the indie world as well as the studio system. When the film was unleashed, it became a huge sensation. It was held in the same regard and infamy as the likes of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. In the description, I'll have a link to Roger Ebert's experience at a kitty matinee of Night of the Living Dead. As mentioned earlier, the public domain status of the film allowed it to spread across the world like wildfire. The script by Romero and Russo tackles so much without making it seem like it. For a film with a black protagonist, race is not mentioned at all, which has led many thinking Romero knew what he was doing by casting Dwayne Jones and wasn't just casting him because he was the best actor to audition. It's as if because there was not attention drawn to the race of the main character, a la Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, that it makes racial themes all the more apparent. The 1960s and 1980s saw the rise of divorce rates. The nuclear family was a casualty of the introduction of no-fault divorce. 
uh, the nuclear family being represented by the Coopers, a husband and wife in near-constant antagonism, but both still caring for their daughter. They were the kind of family you would expect to have backyard cookouts and the white picket fence, but they would be a family on the brink of breaking, and the stress of the situation of the dead coming back to life has only made the situation worse. The soundtrack for the film was primarily stock music from Capitol Production Music Library, from Capitol Records. This would be the case also for the follow-up Dawn of the Dead. More on that later. Barisi Sarabandi released the soundtrack in 1982 with the music tracks and bits of movie dialogue. In 2010, Zero Day Releasing produced a CD of the original soundtrack called They Won't Stay Dead, music from the soundtrack of Night of the Living Dead. As far as finding an affordable copy of the soundtrack, good luck with that. Amusingly enough, many of these tracks would be used for the animated series Ren and Stimpy. Despite the success of the film, Romero saw little of the box office returns, continuing to rely on his commercial work to stay afloat. Romero would still make films with varying degrees of success. There's always Vanilla, Season of the Witch, The Crazies, and the vampire classic Martin have gone on to cult status, but not to the degree of recognition as Night of the Living Dead. Oddly enough, it was a documentary on then-fresh Buffalo Bills rookie O.J. Simpson that gave Romero steady work through the 1970s. John Russo, as a filmmaker, wouldn't reach the heights of Romero. His peak, for a lack of a better term, uh, would be with Santa Claus, a borderline nudie horror film featuring Scream Queen Debbie Rashan. He's also responsible for the atrocious 30th anniversary edition of Night of the Living Dead. Trust me, you don't need to put yourself through that crap. It's not even worth challenging yourself by watching it. He also co-wrote the story that would develop into Return of the Living Dead, the punk horror comedy directed by Dan O'Bannon. Dwayne Jones loathed the character of Ben. Lawrence Fishburne met Jones in real life and complimented him on the role. Jones reacted negatively. I can understand why Jones would. Jones would make sporadic film appearances, mostly working in the stage environment. Ben isn't the hero many commentators and critics make him out to be. In Jones's own words, he was just the guy passing through. Ben tried to do what was needed to survive. He was engaging in his own self-preservation, dragging others along but still thinking for himself. Look at the scene where Barbara is recounting her experience in the cemetery. Ben isn't giving her attention or expressing concern for her. He's not showing any empathy or sympathy. People want to see characters as, well, pardon the pun, black and white. But Ben is one of many shades of gray in this film. Carl Hardman plays Harry Cooper, another shade of gray that people like to represent as a clear-cut bad guy in their view. Hardman made it his own call to behave in a wily manner and speak his lines louder, just to be a contrast to Jones's Ben. Hardman's only other acting credit, according to IMDb, is Russo's Santa Claus. Poor guy. Judith O'Day played Barbara. Barbara was a typical creation of cinema at the time. She becomes almost a passive entity, blending with the furniture on set after the death of her brother. When she finally does take a proactive role, she's killed within a minute. Oh, um, spoiler alert for a movie over 50 years old. But Romero clearly learned from this mistake, bringing some of the best female characters in horror and film in general in later installments. Rounding out the cast are Marilyn Eastman, Keith Wayne, Judith Ridley, and Kyra Sean. Bill Hinsman played the cemetery ghoul. 
Even more interesting are the minor characters who give the best lines. George Cassana and Bill Cardill acted out the interview played at the beginning of this episode. The improv between them led to one of horror's greatest lines. Charles Craig, in the role of the newscaster, is a pivotal turn because he's feeding info to the characters and at the same time giving us the audience that same info. Russ Streiner as Johnny gave us an all-time great line. They're coming to get you, Barbara. I honestly don't know what else to say about this film. It's not just an important horror film, but an important film in general. This is required viewing for everyone. Night of the Living Dead is a film, a symbol. If by some crazy circumstance you haven't seen this film, get on that. There is no shortage of physical or streaming avenues to see it. up weeks after the zombies first started coming back to life and attacking the living. The media is still trying to get a handle on the situation. A police force was created to eliminate zombies that were hidden by family members. With society crumbling, four survivors get out of the city. Roger and Peter, two members of the aforementioned task force, Stephen, a traffic helicopter pilot, and Fran, a TV station director. After a few close calls in an airfield, they find a shopping mall. Upon finding a cachet of civil defense supplies, they hold up there for a while. The temptation of all the items in the stores below get the best of Roger and Peter. They take it upon themselves to check them all out. They soon realize the mall can be fortified. Unfortunately, the zombies are not the only threat to their luxurious safe haven. Adding to the situation is the revelation that Fran is pregnant. Dawn of the Dead came about at a time when Romero wanted to revisit the world of the zombies. He was given a tour of the Monroeville Mall and noticed the civil defense supplies. That observation was the spark needed for him to plan out a follow-up to Night of the Living Dead. With the support of Italian horror director Dario Argento, Romero was able to get started on pre-production for Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead did everything a sequel should. Expanded the world, raised the stakes and offer deep character development. There are thematic callbacks to the previous film, families unable to cope with their dead loved ones coming back to life, the zombie hunts have become an excuse to drink and shoot. The media still has no grasp of the situation for the panicked viewers at home. The public needs facts. What do you have to give us? They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Do you understand that, Mr. Berman? That's what keeps them going. Similar to Night of the Living Dead, there are multiple edits and cuts of the film to be found. There's a theatrical cut, director's cut, and the Argento zombie cut. For the completionists out there, there is an extra long cut you can find on YouTube that pretty much contains all the edits mashed together with a few new moments added in. Romero gives us a bunch of new characters to get behind, and they have a better handle of what's going on around them. The mall allows Romero to take jabs at the consumerism that was beginning to take a hold on America. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct. 
memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. Tom Savini handled the blood and guts makeup effects. When Savini was first brought in on the project, Romero gave him a simple instruction. Come up with ways to kill people. Helicopter propellers, screwdrivers, machetes are only some of the tools used to dispatch the living dead. The blood has an orangey tinge to it, a factor Savini has stated as his biggest pet peeve of his work at this time. Similar to Night of the Living Dead, Romero uses stock library music. This time, he utilized De Wolf for the theatrical and director's cut. Thanks to Trunk Records, a number of the library pieces were available to collectors via a CD release. was Ice Flow 9. Uh, The significance of this track is that it was the first piece of music we hear in the opening credits of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. he was granted the rights for the European distribution of Dawn of the Dead. His go-to composers, Goblin, created a diverse soundscape, some of which made it into the theatrical cut in America. continues the Romero archetype of the cool, calm, and collected person of color who dons a quasi-leadership role in the group. He is the one who suggests they go into the mall for supplies. He plans out the fortification. Foray's scenes with Scott H. Reiniger's Roger gives the film its needed moments of levity. David M. Gee as Stephen is first introduced as an antagonist to Peter, with the peak of their tensions being at the airfield. After that, they manage to be more altruistic. Stephen, similar to Harry Cooper, is trying to come to grips with the situation, but is struggling to do so. Stephen, more than the other survivors, becomes ensnared in the trappings of the mall. Galen Ross's Fran marks a big step forward in regards to female characters in Romero films. 
She's able to defend herself and takes initiative on flying the helicopter. She comes off as an apology for the treatment of characters like Barbara and Judy in the previous film. Dawn of the Dead is a classic and one of the greatest horror movies ever made. An interesting group of characters, awesome gore, an engaging soundscape, Romero at the peak of his powers. As with Night of the Living Dead, this is another that is essential viewing whether you're a horror fan or just a fan of movies in general. We can lift you out to safety. Please answer my call if you can hear me. Forget to be a boy. Sit in, please. Like all the others, you know. Listen. You can hear it over the engine. Jesus, baby, Joseph. In the years since the dead started to walk the earth, humanity is on the brink of extinction. We're introduced to a small band of survivors divided into different factions in an underground bunker. The dominant group is the military, led by Captain Rhodes. There's the scientific team of Sarah and Dr. Fisher under the leadership of Logan, nicknamed Dr. Frankenstein. Then there's John, the helicopter pilot, and McDermott, the technician, caught in the middle. Despite all that's happened topside, the scientists are still trying to figure out a means of reversing or understanding the phenomena. Numerous zombie specimens are kept in a corral in the bunker. Rhodes begins to grow tired of their lack of progress. He often threatens to leave them in the bunker and escape in the helicopter. Meanwhile, Logan has been training a zombie, Bub, to see if the dead can be reverted back to a more docile status. While getting more zombies from out of the corral, some of the military men are killed. Tensions escalate as the military completely cut off their support of the scientific team. It is also discovered that Logan has been engaging in activities with the dead soldiers that everyone thinks have been properly buried. In between dawn and day, Romero was engaging in a pretty fruitful period of his career. Night Riders told the story of a medieval traveling carnival where motorcycles were used in place of horses for jousting. Creepshow was an homage to EC horror comics of the 1950s, with which he collaborated with Stephen King. He created a TV series, Tales from the Dark Side, that ran from 1983 to 1988. With Day of the Dead, he returned to the world of the zombies and unfairly had higher expectations placed on the film's shoulders. Following up Dawn of the Dead must have been a daunting task. Not only did it have a great script he could bring to the screen, but there was a small cast, a solid crew, Dario Argento as producer, and a fantastic score by Goblin. When Day of the Dead was released, it was nowhere near the hit that Dawn was. Over the decades since, it has developed its own following. Romero himself has stated that Day is his personal favorite of the trilogy. For some movies, it takes some time before an audience learns to appreciate them. This is often the case with films that are third installments of a trilogy. Even classics like Return of the Jedi, Army of Darkness, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade took some time before they were beloved by fans that have since adopted them. The third film in Romero's iconic zombie trilogy is no exception. Romero had a mission with the original script of Day of the Dead. It was much bigger in scale and scope, yet he was unable to secure the funding for such a grand venture, especially an R-rated horror movie. According to Greg Nicotero, the script was as thick as a phone book. Romero had to make many compromises, which I think helped the film. Tom Savini is at the top of his horror game here. Some of the best horror movie kills were spotlighted here. 
gone is the red-orange crayon blood and bluish-gray skin tone. Now the blood is a deep crimson and the zombies never looked better. You have a head being torn off and the vocal cords distort as the head is being ripped off. Guts spill out of a zombie on an examination table. The death of Rhodes stands as one of the most unforgettable kills in film history. To compare John Harrison the Goblin is unwarranted. Harrison did his part to help make Day of the Dead stand on its own. Those pining for Goblin need to realize Goblin had been long disbanded when Day of the Dead was in production. The opening track remains one of the best pieces in 80s horror film. for great performances. Laurie Cardill as Sarah represents one of the many women Romero created to make up for the character of Barbara in Night of the Living Dead, and Cardill provides a strong female presence. Joe Pilato delivers furious antagonism as Rhodes and has some of the best lines. I'm running this monkey farm now, Frankenstein, and I want to know what the fuck you're doing with my time! Richard Liberty matches Pilato's aggression with a crazed turn as Logan. Terry Alexander as John is the level-headed black character. Supporting roles feature some solid talents, many who have worked with Romero previously on other projects. John Amplis, Jarlath Conroy, Anthony DeLeo Jr., Ralph Marrero, and Gary Howard Clark greatly help the leads of the film. Sherman Howard steals the film when he's on screen as Bub. Day of the Dead is a fantastic horror film and, at the time, was a fitting close to Romero's Dead trilogy. Is it as good as the previous two films? Not by a long shot, but still an entertaining horror film. I often find myself going back to Day of the Dead on a frequent basis because everything about it works to a T. The the cast, the music, the gore. If you've previously wrote this film off, go back and give it another chance. You might find it's a lot better than you think. And that wraps up this episode of the original Dead Trilogy from director George A. Romero. Thanks for listening. The next episode will go up on the day after the WWE Royal Rumble, which will be the 27th of January. In honor of the beloved pay-per-view event, I'll be taking a look at some cult classics prominently featuring professional wrestlers. If you enjoyed this program and want to see it grow, a one-time donation to my PayPal would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions can be sent to my Gmail. All of that in the description below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Mac and the Movies. Take care, folks.
puts some kind of explanation down here before you leave. He's one as good as any lady to find. Get out. 